Equipping today's college students to make their four years count for eternity. This is the Campus Outreach Podcast. Before we kind of dive into Matthew 7 tonight, uh, I want to tell a story about a guy named Manti Teow. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Manti Teow. Uh, he was a college uh, linebacker at Notre Dame, was, was All-American, was, was very good, um, and Manti Teow became really famous for uh, a relationship that he didn't really have. So, as he was at the top of his game, uh, there, he had this uh, relationship that he had talked about uh, after the game in, in different interviews, and uh, eventually there was some sort of information that came out that this something wasn't right about this relationship. And so... Uh, come to find out, over the course of time, uh, it, it sort of leaks out that Manti Teo was sort of the first most public person to be a part of an online hoax, a relationship scam online. And it was, it was, ground, it was, it was all kinds of news story. It was, it was life-shattering for Manti Teo, and that this was, the, for the whole world, he had been sort of uh, full dupe that he had a relationship that he thought he had and he didn't really have it. It was a really sad story. And here's the question I really want us to press into tonight. Is that possible spiritually? Is it possible to think that you have a relationship that you actually don't in reality? That's what we're digging into tonight. So if you want to look at Matthew chapter 7, these are the the closing words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So let's, let's pick up in verse uh, 21. Should be on the screen, uh, Trent, if you want to uh, follow along with me. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, um, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, and there's two, two main ideas I want to drive at. Or, or what, what does it mean to be a true, what does it mean to be a false disciple? And what does it mean to be a true disciple? And so, Uh, Should be on the screen. Empty words and empty works and a covenant relationship and thankful obedience. Okay, so we're going to take those one at a time tonight. If you're taking notes, that's how you can follow along. So first, the marks of a false disciple. First, empty words. Notice what the group who comes to Jesus, notice what they say to Jesus. They say, Lord. And the the word Lord is the right word. It's the word, same word that's used in Romans 10, where it says, if you confess Jesus is Lord uh, and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And notice that they don't just use the right word. They use it twice. They say, Lord, Lord. Okay? And we don't really have this in our culture today. They didn't have bold and uh, italics and Times New Roman underlining abilities. If you wanted to try to make the case that something was especially true or uh, emphasize something, you would double the word. You'd say it twice. So you would say the Sanford parking lot is full, full, okay? Very full. Um, all right. Not a lot of commuter students in the room, maybe. I don't know. 
Um, but these people say, Lord, Lord. And it's really interesting. Every time it's used in the New Testament, when somebody says, Lord, Lord, it's people who are trying to make their case to Jesus that they're connected to him. Um, Luke six forty six, Jesus uh, says, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And then in Matthew 25, there are these people who are supposed to be waiting for Jesus, watching for Jesus. Uh, and he comes back and they're asleep. Uh, and they're, they say, Lord, Lord. It's people who are trying to prove themselves to Jesus by their words. Lord, Lord. And so what they're, what they're saying sounds good. But what Jesus reminds us in this passage, what he shows us is that their words didn't hold any weight. He's showing us that words can be empty. And we all know this is true, right? We all know this to be true. Anybody who has been in a, a middle school relationship knows that words can be empty, okay? Because you might love Sally in the fall, but spring is coming, right? Words can be empty. We all know that's true. And Jesus makes this point really clear in this text. It's possible to identify with Jesus. It's possible to say that you belong with him when you really don't. David Platt, who we had on the screen earlier, he said this. He said, it's possible to profess publicly what you don't possess personally. It's possible to profess publicly what you don't possess personally. Okay, so some of you met my almost two-year-old on the way in, okay? And we are really working on the word sorry in our house right now, okay? And uh, we're not doing too great with the word sorry in our house right now. Um, so we're trying to, to explain, this, you know, this is what you've done, and, and can, you, can you tell mommy you're sorry? And when he's sitting in his little timeout corner, uh, he will say pretty much whatever he's got to say to get out of that timeout corner. So it's really funny. He says sorry, and he will, like, scrunch up his face and be like, sorry. Uh, we're like, well, well, we'll take that. All right, it's good enough for today. Okay, we're making progress. We're working on it. But here's the bottom line. We're not interested in a sound that comes from his mouth. We're interested in the posture of his heart. In other words, the, the words are only sweet and rich to the extent that they reflect the posture of the heart. So these people come to Jesus and they think they have a relationship when they, they don't. Their words, in other words, their words didn't match their heart. And so in Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And Jesus isn't telling the crowd to do more, to earn more, to, to be better. He's not trying to say work harder. He's saying, you don't actually view me the way that you say you do. Okay, so similar illustration. Andrew, we're, we're working on uh, follow me all the time. I'm trying to say, okay, buddy, come with me. I even did this tonight. And so around the house, we'll say, okay, we're, we're going to the car, buddy. Like, fo follow me to the car, okay? And I've got about a, like a 10% success rate with him following me pretty much anywhere. What's funny is even some of the time he'll say, okay, daddy. And he will turn around and feet are like moving past and like hustling the other direction, okay? So you can say, okay, daddy, and then bolt the opposite direction, okay? Not uncommon. It happens every day in our house. The trust that he has in that moment is revealed more by his feet than his words. 
Does that make sense? It's more revealed by his feet than his words. In other words, his feet don't lie. And we can identify with Jesus with our words, but at the very same time be running an entirely different direction from him. So don't rest on empty words. That's the mark of a false disciple. Second mark of a false disciple, empty works. So it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, anybody in this room ever been skydiving before? We got any skydivers? Wow, we got like one, two, three, four. All right, so when you go skydiving, what do you, what do, you do once you jump? Like what happens after you jump? Well, you, you fall, okay, that's, that's good. Uh, hopefully not long. Like what, how do you not fall like the whole way? You activate your parachute. What do you do to activate your parachute? Big you pull a cord. All right. It's great. Um, and you got to hope that the parachute that you pull, the cord that you pull isn't a lemon, right? Because if you pull a lemon of a parachute, uh, you're coming down, and you're not coming down at the speed you want to be coming down, right? So the, your whole body's weight is resting in the strength of that parachute. Now, your trust in that parachute, if you're like me, and I haven't done skydiving for this reason, I'm not going to be very happy on that way down. I'm not going to trust that parachute. I'm going to be pretty nervous about that parachute the whole way down. But regardless, when you're jumping off the plane, you pull that ripcord, your full weight is resting in the strength of that parachute, regardless of how confident you are in that parachute. Does that make sense? And so what, what I'm, the point I'm trying to get at is that the object of what your trust is in in that moment is more important than your trust in that moment. Does that make sense? So uh, it's where the, the object of where your weight is resting is what matters most. Now look at the people in verse 22. Notice the characters in this passage. Where is the weight of their soul resting? Look at what it says. It's, it's, they say, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? Where is the weight of their soul resting? It's resting in themselves. They make reference to Jesus, Lord, Lord. But the hope of their soul is found in what they brought to the table. And so the key question that Matthew 7 punches us all with in this room is where have you placed the weight of your trust? Where have you placed the weight of your trust? These are people who trusted in their performance, their performance for Jesus, and they missed the need for his mercy. In other words, they, Jesus had some of their schedule, but he didn't have their heart. He had some of their schedule, he didn't have their heart. He had some of their respect. They said, Lord, Lord, but he didn't have their heart. He had their volunteer hours, but he didn't have their heart. And we're going to talk this, about this more in the coming weeks. They liked Jesus, but they didn't love Jesus. 
In other words, they come and they say all these things. We've done all these things. And Jesus says, you still missed it. So where do you look for your confidence? Do you look to your own record of goodness? Do you look to your own spiritual resume that you've constructed? Do you look to your background or your pedigree or the church you grew up in or, or something that you've done? And if that's the case, if that's you, then in Jesus' words here in Matthew 7, they would challenge you to see that you've missed it, that you've missed the grace of God. And if that's the case, then you'll never see God's grace as this free gift that you're totally undeserving of, as, as Abby and Grant made clear earlier. You will instead see God's grace and his goodness and his kindness as something that you've slowly but surely accumulated, you've earned, you've merited over time. And so you'll, you'll see your spiritual resume or your, your good works or what you, what you spend your time doing as something that's given you some sort of status or, or righteousness. And here's what will happen. You will either be puffed up with pride that you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish. You've become the moral person you set out to be. Or you'll be crushed in despair because you've never measured up. And if that's describing you, I really, I really don't want you to miss this. God is bringing that to your attention so that you can confess. The story of every person, every follower of Christ, Jesus' last meta- metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, every, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, it's like the wise man who put his ha- built his house on the rock. But if you, if you don't do them, you're the man who built his house on the sand. Every follower of Christ's story is I was building in the sand and he came and grabbed me and set my feet upon the rock so we don't look to our record or goodness or moral deeds or anything else apart from Jesus as our standing with God we look to him and him alone he is our only confidence now talked about the marks of a false disciple let's talk about the marks of a true disciple okay Covenant relationship, first thing, covenant relationship. Notice in verse 23, Jesus says to these people what? He says, I never knew you. Okay. Um, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this is really key to understanding this whole passage. Because the word know here is not an informational word. Okay, this isn't a database Word. It's the same word that's used all over the Bible of a husband and wife knowing each other deeply and intimately. In other words, the idea is a relational, it's a relational word, not an informational one. And so Jesus isn't saying to them, hey, you didn't know about me. He's saying you didn't know me. And actually, he's even saying it more powerfully than that. He's saying, I didn't know you. A friend of mine years ago uh, talked about um, this might show how old I am, but talked about growing up and watching Chipper Jones play baseball. He was the biggest Chipper Jones fan. He loved Chipper Jones. He knew how many home runs Chipper Jones had and uh, knew that he was soon to be a Hall of Famer, knew his batting average in every year. And he gets to meet Chipper Jones at a charity event. And it's like, for a kid, it's like, this is, this is as good as it gets. You get to meet your baseball hero, Chipper Jones. So he gets to meet Chipper Jones, shake his hand, sign a baseball card, And then the next game, he goes to the game. He's got his Atlanta Braves hat on. He's got his Chipper Jones jersey on. He's down the third baseline, and he yells out, Chipper, Chipper, hey, Chipper, it's it's me. And he said, I got nothing. And he said, in that moment, I realized I knew Chipper 
Chipper didn't know me. What does it mean to know Jesus in the way that Matthew 7.23 is talking about? It's this language of husband and wife. It's this language of covenant relationship, of covenant knowing. So the bottom line is the answer is this. You enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus by faith. And and we don't really use the language of covenant often in our context. It's really only used at weddings. Um, But when when you're in a marriage, you say, I do. You enter into a new status of relationship. When you step into a marriage, when you say, I do, your legal status changes. And you enter into a different kind of relationship. It's a union that ties you up in such a way that your life and your spouse's life are bound up together. So from where you brush your teeth to the bank account that you have to all the relationships in your world, everything about your life is bound up together. And part of what it means to be in covenant is to say we are joined in such a way that everything is on the table. All I am and all I have is yours. When Bree and I got married, our finances changed. My bank account became her bank account. And her retirement plan became my retirement plan. And her car became my car. And my car became her car. And not just the good, but also the bad. She had student loan debt. In that moment, I say I do, her debt becomes my debt. And when you're united to Jesus by faith in a covenant relationship like that, your life becomes united to Jesus in that way, in a covenant relationship. And that your life gets bound up in his life such that all of your debt also gets bound up in him. And you get all of his righteousness and he absorbs all of your debt. And this is the news of the gospel. That by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus, resting the weight of our soul upon Jesus and his finished work at the cross for us, we can be cleansed of our sins, reconciled to God forever, and given Jesus' righteous record uh, himself. All in, but here's the thing about Matthew 7 that it makes clear for us. It's an all-or-nothing kind of relationship. So this is where the covenant analogy is helpful. Uh, imagine I went to my wife on the day that I proposed, and I got down on a knee and I said, I really want to marry you. Will you marry me? And she says, yes. I said, great. But I got a couple of girls that I've kind of had some interest in in the past, and I'd, I'd like to still see kind of where things go. I'd like to follow those trails kind of to the end of the, the path. Okay? How's that proposal party going to go? It's going to be a pretty awkward party. There's not going to be a whole lot of people uh, at that one. Okay? And why not? Because all of us know, all of us know that that kind of relationship you don't enter into partially. It's an all or nothing type of gig. And so you think about an employer. An employer gets a part of your life. They get 40 hours of your week. They get a little bit of your time. You give them part of your attention, part of your bandwidth, part of your schedule. With a marriage, you say everything is on the table. Because the life of the two of us is bound up together. And in the gospel, Christ has already taken the plunge of love, as Tim Keller says. He, Jesus, has fully absorbed the price of the relationship. 
And by his death and his resurrection, he's made it possible for you and I to enter into that gracious covenant fully by his invitation, by his grace. Not out of a gift, or as a gift, not out of earning, not out of trying to make your way in there, but only by his mercy and grace. So, first mark is a covenant relationship. Second mark is thankful obedience. So if you look at this this passage in Matthew 7, and and if this was the only passage we had in the Bible to look at some of this, uh, we might be inclined to think that what Jesus is really after here is more works. So you look at verse 22. It says, Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are the ones that enter in. So only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then you look at verse 23, and Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you look later in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, you know, the one who hears my words and does them, puts them into practice, that's, that's the one that he's talking about, is the wise builder. Luke 6, 46, which we looked at earlier, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So if you were looking at these on the face, you would say, well, it seems like Jesus is saying, do more, have more works, have better works, improve your works. But here's the thing, when you enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus, you change when you embrace the gift of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and you're reconciled to God, you change. You don't change perfectly. You don't change instantly, but you change genuinely. Not because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but out of, out of gratitude. Tim Keller says it this way, and it should be on the screen. Until you truly grasp the gospel, you tend to fall on either two sides. You look at the blessings of God as conditional, so you try your hardest to earn them, to meet the conditions, so to speak. Or you look at the blessings of God as unconditional, so you go on with your life knowing that at the end you're good and you don't take the law seriously. But when you understand that Jesus Christ fulfilled the conditions of the covenant at a radical infinite cost to himself so that we could be loved unconditionally, we look at things differently. We look at the law, the conditions of the covenant, and we say, i got to take these things seriously because Jesus died to fulfill this, so this is important. So with all my might, I try to obey. But if I do, I, if I do fail, and I will fail, I know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you understand the gospel in this way, then our obedience is a way of saying thank you to God and becoming more like him. But it's not a way of earning my way back to God. Do you hear what Keller is saying there? He's saying when you know Christ, you enter into this saving relationship with him. You want to live in obedience to him. Not because you're trying to earn anything from him. Not because you're trying to prove anything to him. You want to live out of obedience to him simply out of gratitude and thankfulness. Uh, A friend of mine has this, um, he has this men's weekend that he does with his uh, sons when they turn a certain age. And so he took his son on a, a nice trip uh, you know, the finest everything. We're going to go and get the best food that you get to pick where we go. We're going to go to whatever game you want to go to, all expenses, I, whatever you want to do. Uh, it's, it's that kind of weekend, okay? And so they have this great weekend. They go and have a blast. They eat the finest food. They go to the best games. They do all the things. And then finally, on the last day, he wakes up to his son at the microwave with a little thing of, of instant oatmeal. And he's heating up a bowl of oatmeal. He's like, what are, you, what are you doing, son? And he says, I just wanted to say thanks in whatever way I could. 
This is what the gospel does to us. It shatters our sense of earning. It gives us gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. It makes us more passionate to obey. Not out of a fear or out of a sense of of earning or making our way back to God, but out of sheer, just pure gratitude and thankfulness that he would do this for us. We're like the little kid with the bowl of oatmeal saying, "I, I just don't want to do what I can, what I'm able to say thank you. It's just a response of our heart. And so don't look to your words. Don't look to your works. Look at the posture of your heart, but ultimately look to Jesus. And, and here's what I would challenge us all with, uh, trying to bring this down really at home and apply this to each of us. Does this kind of obedience mark your life? Does that kind of gratitude and thankfulness and, obe- and in response to God's mercy, does that, is that true of you? Does that mark your life? Which picture... Maybe you could ask it this way. Which picture better describes you, the true disciple or the false disciple? And here's here's the thing. Our our staff would love to dive into that question with you. We would love to really press into that and talk about that. So there's plenty of students in this room who would love to talk about that. And here's what I will lastly say. I know it's Samford. I mean, we we, we talked about Manti Teo's story in the beginning. And... uh, there's a sense of real shame. There was this relationship that he thought that he had that he didn't. And here's one of the things. I think at Samford, we can be prone to fall into this, where it's like we don't want to take an honest look because we don't want to find out what we might find out. And here's what I would challenge you. Uh, life really began for Manti Teo when he found it. It was all false. Now, that illustration breaks down for a number of reasons. But that's where life really could begin for him. So here's what I would challenge you to do. Don't take tonight and just blow past it. I I would plead with you to wrestle with this yourself, to say, Lord, where am I? And and here's the reality. When you know with surety where you stand and why you're there, standing upon Jesus' grace, that's where your relationship with him can grow. But it's not until you really stand on the rock and you're resting the weight of your soul in him that you're truly able to begin to grow. And that's the, that's the long of our hearts. That's where we would want to come alongside you and, and help with that. So let me pray for us, and then I'll invite our MCs back up. So. Father in heaven, we thank you that you looked upon us in our spiritual bankruptcy, in our spiritual poverty, And when we had nothing to offer, you came to us and you loved us in such a way that you you purchased our debt. You've you've come to us and in your grace and mercy, now we can find life in your name and we can enter into this kind of covenant relationship. Lord, I pray, would you even now be bringing clarity to each of us? Help us to know whether or not we've built our house on the rock or on the sand. And Lord, from there, would you changes and shape us and mold us so that our lives are that of thankful obedience. Like the little kid with the bowl of oatmeal saying, I just want to, I just want to say thank you. This is, here's my life. Here's, here's all of us. Lord, I pray this would be true of us. Would you help us? Would you meet us? Would you show us? Would you shape us? Would mold us more into the image of Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.